Did I miss any blanks this morning? What are we good with the blanks? Oh, Sarah. One B, undeserved, or unmerited. Either one will do. Undeserved, unmerited. Um, any other missing blanks? Okay. Okay, um, questions about this or even last week with the predestination and stuff. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on, in, in case you didn't notice in this sentence. There's an awful lot going on. Um, either one of the two points that I covered today could easily have filled the message. Um, and so it's, there's a lot more we can do. So questions or thoughts of that? Oh, Bridget. This is actually from last week, but we were talking about how um, with salvation, we choose and God chooses, and I was wondering how that plays out as far as with sanctification. Uh Uh, It's, uh, okay, so it's, go to Philippians 2. Let's go to Philippians 2. In fact... This is a prime passage. So last week I was saying that the principal thing, I think, to wrap our heads around is that the Bible insists that one actor, God or man, does not nullify the other. That the Bible again and again presents God's sovereign activity as decisive and as causal, and alongside of that, rather than negating our choice and volition, and the significance of our activity, it actually establishes it. And dealing with our sanctification, which is the, the theological term for our growing to be more like Christ, is precisely where Paul, point Paul makes in Philippians 2.12 um, through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now pause. Active imperative verb. It's the Greek word energo. We get energy. It's, it's an active word. There's no question. We're, we're to do something. We're to work out our salvation. That's active. We're to do it. And he's exhorting us to do it. He's commanding us to do it. And then he gives us a reason. Why should I get working? For it's God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And I will freely grant that my natural inclination would be, if the scripture wasn't informing me otherwise, well, if God is, I mean, notice what God's taking credit for. The doing of it, the accomplishing of it, and the desiring to do it. God will make you want to do it, and God will make you carry through on that desire, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And I would think, it would seem intuitive to me, well, if that's the case, then I can just sort of kick back and coast because God's going to, you know, he's going to put those desires in my heart and he's going to make me fall through on him. So I can just sort of, you know. And Paul says, no, precisely because God is doing it, get to work. So it's, it's the both and. And how that works, I don't know. Uh, I don't claim to know how those things fit together. I don't see, I mean, there's no inherent, um, there's no inherent contradiction. What it doesn't make is intuitive sense. 
what doesn't jump out at us is the logic of, well, because of this, that, which Paul is making. I need to get to work because God's at work in me but willing to do. Um, but that's precisely a place where I see that notion of concurrence, two wills, two workings. I need to get to work because God is at work in me. So that would be a perfect example in my mind of framing that mystery, of framing that, that, that concept that um, is counterintuitive. So no, we, we need to get to work in our sanctification. And, and so Paul can say, go over to, um, where is it? I worked harder than the rest of them. Where is that? Where's Mitchell? I need him to tell me what the passage is. Um, where is it? Is that 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 15? If someone finds that to me, they get five points and a cup of coffee. Ten points can be redeemed for a cup of coffee in the fireside room. Um, 1 Corinthians 15? Where are we in there? 10. 15, 10. Okay, so yeah, look, look at this. It's precisely, again, the same logic at work. But by the grace of God, okay, let's go back to verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it is not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then I is I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul is attributing his work to himself. I worked harder than all of them, and yet he insists it's also not I but Christ. So which one is it, Paul? Did you work harder than all of them, or did Christ work in you harder than all of them? And I think his answer would be yes. And again, not saying I could diagram how that works, but again, that the New Testament says that's the way it works. The universe we live in is a universe where I do things that God's doing in me, is the, the answer that I try to give. Does that make sort of makes sense? So that's no, a great question. So what it, what it means is the New Testament absolutely insists I need to get to work. I need to take measures to become sanctified. It's, the Puritans can speak of holy sweat. It's, it's active. It's challenging. And yet there's a way of working that is relying on grace and is seeing grace working in and through us. It isn't simply leaning on human works. Um, and that's the type of paradigm Paul's using here and he uses in Philippians. So, great, good question. Other question? Yes, in the back, Wanda Cowan. Or no, no microphone for Wanda, apparently. No, here he comes. Okay. This is kind of a trivial question, but grace, I know, is undeserved favor. But a lot of times it seems like the word grace could be interpreted power, like the grace of God working in you. Is that I just get confused. I don't know why with what a definition, a good definition of grace, the difference between grace and mercy. I mean, I get it, but I don't have one strong in my head. Well, oftentimes we, we and we do this in life, we can take a thing and what it's used to do, um, we, we can view the effects. So like there's power at work in these lights causing light. We can talk about there's power in this room lighting the room. But where I'm getting my definition of unmerited favor is coming from Romans. Let me, let me, let's go to Romans 11, and then we'll go to Romans 4, and I'll try to explain my definition of where I'm coming from with this. Um, so Romans 11, Paul makes an important statement. <clears throat> 
Um, in five and six, it's dealing with the issue of Israel, but that's not to my point here. So too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So all I want to get from this passage is that works nullifies grace. Or to put it another way, unlike God working and me working, where we would be tempted to, where I'm saying they don't cancel each other out, here, grace and works do. If we can establish something as of works, whatever it is, it's not grace. Conversely, if we can establish something as grace, whatever it is, it's not works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. Right? Does that, that's all I'm trying to get from here. So when we're looking at any given thing, if we can establish it is either grace or it is a work, we know it's not the other one. Fair enough? You with me? So that's all I'm trying to get from this verse. If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace will no longer be grace. So the first one, the first thought I have is grace is in opposition to, it's antithetical to, it's negated by works. Grace and works are polar opposites, and they, they are, they're incompatible. They can't both exist in the same thing. Okay. Then, what's the nature of works? Go to Romans 4. Okay? And in Romans 4, we get a... a um, insight into the nature of works. So, um, verse 3 and 4 and 5. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteousness. Now, and then here's where a literal, an overly literally wooden Greek translation is helpful. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not according, literally as according to grace, but according to debt. Your ESV has, my ESV has, that one works his wages are not counted as gift but as due. But a woodenly literal reading would be his wages are not according to grace. They're according to debt. So from that, at its core notion then, works are about obligation. You work and you get paid. And that's why grace isn't in the equation. When you work and you receive something for your work, what you receive is not a grace. The wages of sin is death. That death that you get paid for sin is not a grace. It's, it's a payment. When your employer pays you, it's not a grace. Because it's, it's obligated. It's due, right? So if that's the nature of works, and works cancels out grace, then grace can't be a debt. It can't be owed. That's where I'm coming with my fundamental, definitionally. What is grace? It is unowed. It cannot be obligated. To speak about you ought to be gracious is talking about square circles. It, it's, it's gibberish. It, it, it's incoherent. It, you're, you're, it's contradictory. Grace has to be free. Now, as we start defining how God shows his grace, you can start speaking of the ends it accomplishes and summing up God's grace working in me. Sure. What he's saying is this power to obey is a free and undeserved gift of God, and he's speaking of that free and undeserved gift as a grace, and that grace is what causes me to work. Sure. But I'm saying at its, at its base level, grace is undeserved or unmerited favor. Mercy is, is undeserved remission. You're holding back bad things. Grace is giving good things that aren't deserved. So mercy would be... a, a, a not punishing someone. That'd be merciful. Grace is just gifting someone with something undeserved. But the point I'm getting at with grace, where I'm hammering this, 
is because so often when we deal with election and predestination, we want God to be fair as we mean fair. And by fair, what we mean is equity. We mean everyone getting treated the same. And God never claims to be fair in that sense. Never claims. He's just. He's righteous. God never says, I treat everyone exactly the same. Um, and and it's, it's obvious. He chose one people, the Jews, and he didn't choose the Chinese. He chose one son, Jacob, and he doesn't choose Esau. So in that definition of fairness, by which we mean um, unit, not unanimity, um, you, what's the word? Um, unif- not uniformity. Um, is it universal, uniform? In that definition of fairness, he doesn't ever claim to be. In fact, what's he say to Moses? I have mercy in whom I have mercy. Right out of the gate, God's equating part of his glory is his freedom to grace. And so if grace can't be merited, then we've got to resist any desire or attempt. I'm trying to make it clear. We've got to fight the desire. To, we wouldn't say it this way, but we start thinking this way. Wouldn't it be better? Which is another way of saying, shouldn't God? Because certainly we'd think God should do the better thing, right? If we want to think it's better or be nicer or be more loving, then what we are in fact saying is God, who is good, should do this. We're, we're putting some sort of moral impetus on it. God should have been more gracious. And that you can't say that. You're talking about square circles. And, and so that's why I'm trying to make that foundation because that is our inclination. We're tempted to say, if you don't come in here and give a candy bar to everyone in the room, you can't give a candy bar to anyone. You can't come in here and be gracious to five people and not gracious to 50 people. You can't. And we want to cry foul when people do it. And there are contexts where that's appropriate. It's going to cause chaos if you're a teacher in your class and some of the students get given sodas and not ever. And all the other kids are like, what happened? You know. Um, let me give you the example R.C. Sproul gives of this. Great example. Um, you've probably heard me say this before. I've heard him say it numerous times. He is a professor at a college or a seminary. I think it was a college. And he made it very clear to the students there were three papers, three research papers that were due throughout the year, and each of them had a massive importance on the weight. I think like 20, 25% of the grade, like 25% for each paper, then 25% for all your homework. So 25% of your grade. And he would not accept late papers. The dates were put up on the first day of class. They're written up on the board. No late papers accepted. Get them in. So the first, um, the first paper is due, and there's five trembling students at his desk at the end of the class. Professor Sproul, we're so sorry. And they give him the list of excuses, and he says, okay, you got the weekend. Take the rest of the weekend. You can, you can, I'll give you an extension. And they're just, thank you. They're, you know, just, they're just trembling. They leave. Then the second paper comes due, and now there's like 10 students. And they're, they're please help us out like you did those other students. And he says, Okay. And according to him, they broke out into spontaneous song. We love you, Prof Spro. Oh, yes, we do. No, I've heard him sing it, except in his gravelly voice. We love you. Um, well, then comes the third paper. And at the end of class, the kids aren't even at his desk anymore. Now there's like 20 of them. And he said, hey, where's your paper? And so they're on the way. I go, ah, don't worry. We'll get it to you by the end of the weekend. And he goes, Johnson, you don't have your paper? No, I'll get it to you by the end of the weekend. Zero. He goes, you know what the charge was that went up uniformly amongst these students? That's not fair. And then he, proving a point, oh, you want fair. Johnson, if I remember correctly, you also didn't have your second paper on time as well? That's right. Okay, you failed that one too. Who else wants fair? And it's a lesson in grace. 
But we presume upon God's grace. He's so gracious, he's so abundantly gracious that we cry foul if there's ever a point where we don't see him being gracious to our exact specifications and liking. And the whole point of this passage is we're supposed to marvel that he's gracious to anyone. That's another reason why I'm trying to undermine or attack this notion that the cross is about our value because there is a way of framing the gospel that is these really valuable and important people. And the more valuable and important you make us, well, the more God kind of sort of ought to be good to us. It becomes more and more of a cosmic genie because what would an all-good God do to these really special, valuable, super people? Well, he'd bless them because they're great and wonderful people. And so the good God, of course, is going to become their butler and he's going to bless them. That is not the way the Bible presents the issue. The Bible presents the people who are walking in darkness, alienated, hostile in mind, slaves to sin, following the prince of the power of the air, and yet God in his grace poured out his love upon them and redeemed them. That's, you're supposed to, your jaw is supposed to drop. You're supposed to go, he did what? And you're not supposed to say, well, why didn't he do more? And we have the tendency to come out that way, and it's because we have a man-centered view and because we've confused grace with obligation. So that's the reason why I, I repeatedly hammer that point, because we are all hardwired to start feeling like we're owed something, and that God ought to be, you know, and that's the same logic behind, well, what about the people who never heard in Papua New Guinea? And the implication usually is something like, God would have to be a pretty big jerk to be mean to them. He ought to do something for them. Well, I think he does do something for them, but it's grace. It's not obligation. And we, we really need to cut out, another way to put it is if you finally conclude God does the thing you think he ought to have done, you're not going to be that praiseworthy for him. You don't praise people for doing what, I don't praise the church when I get my paycheck. I mean, I'm thankful I have this job and I'm thankful you free me to do what I do, but I don't like compose hymns of praise in honor of the paycheck, right? Because it was due and you don't either when you get paid. And if God simply does that which he ought to do, we just gutted the praise of heaven. So these are the reasons why I'm sort of hammering and rehammering and re-rehammering these points, because it's so natural for us to want to start moving towards God ought to be fair to everybody. He ought to give everyone the same chance. He ought to. He, and demonstrably, he didn't. Paul gets a personal visit of the resurrected Lord on the Damascus Road. My grandparents didn't. Right? Or name whoever else you want, virtually every other person on the planet, right? Didn't. God chose Israel. In Romans 3, what's the advantage of the Jew? Much in every respect, for they were given the oracles of God. There's only one people on earth God gave his word to. They have this tremendous leg up, or to use modern vernacular, privilege. Jewish privilege. Absolutely they have privilege. Absolutely. If you take privilege and put blessing. I think you'll have a little and less envious system. There's all sorts of blessings. Of course, some people have more blessings than other people. Of course, duh. You know, and so God has given, he's given grace to everyone, but he's given different measures of grace to everyone. There's nobody who doesn't, who, who gets ungrace, who gets like undeserved cursing. There's nobody who gets that. And we all get some measure of grace, but some are gonna get more grace than others. That's just the way it is. And if we want to cry foul, we're misunderstanding grace. That's my point. Um, okay, follow-up said I saw some hands ready to go or not or yes or or is that we're all just we're all in agreement. Oh, Lee. And then Car was that you, Carrie? 
No. Maybe. Um, okay. okay. Um, well, I wondered, you, you were, uh, Wanda was mentioning strength and grace and that somehow this, and power. Yeah. Well, I did a quick little search and then I get uh, from Second Corinthians, my grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in weakness. And it keeps saying that his mighty power, it's direct from God. I don't think it's, it's just part of being in relation with him that he will give us that power. I don't think the grace is, I mean, the fact that we're in relation with God is because of the grace, but then yeah. at that point, he's giving us his power directly. If you translate, swap out of grace, the things I freely give you, my grace, all the things that I'm freely giving you are sufficient for you. Right. All of my abundant, lavish, free gifts are enough, and my abundant, free, lavish gifts will uphold you. I mean, if you swap something like that in, it starts to work. I think that's what Paul is meaning when he speaks those ways about grace. All these good things and blessings that God has freely given to us are enough, and they'll uphold us, and they'll see us through, and they will satisfy us. Yeah, absolutely. Carrie. Okay, so my first question. Oh, we've got you multiple about, questions, eh? Okay. I've got two. One of, them will be like, on. one of them will be like fast. You just have to give me like a yes or a no. <laughs> You know that's so not going to happen. That's really what I'm trying for. Okay, you know that's so, not going to happen, but okay. So you talked about yes. this morning that every we have every blessing in the spiritual places. And then I think you said something about, like, you're going to be talking about that this morning, and I'm going to assume through the rest of, like, the next two sermons, I think, that we still have left on this part, right? Yes. Okay. There, so yes. Like, so, yeah, see, see? So we could, like come back to that at the end of those sermons after your last one right. for that and then like sum those up maybe sure well let me I'd say this honestly the, the, what he's setting up for the whole book the first half of the book so let me let me zoom out macro here here's here's my outline of the first so remember Ephesians you want a really simple outline first three chapters are going to be indicatives or uh, doctrine uh, you can either go with indicatives and imperatives or doctrine and duty or theology, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, whatever. You, here's what is and here's how you ought to live in light of what is. That's the idea. And those are all just attempting to find pithy ways to summarize it. So the first three chapters are fundamentally what is, doctrine, indicative verbs or verbs that just are state of being, verbs that tell you what is. Christ did these things. God does these things. And then the second half of the book, four, five, and six are therefore walk this way. Um, I will not impersonate Aerosmith. And, um, and put on the armor of God. And there's all these things to do in light of that. And I think Paul is going to frame all the indicatives as, I'm going to start talking about these manifold blessings. So he's setting them up in our benediction that we're going through now. But everything he sets up here, so like, okay, the preeminence of Christ, he sets up. But he's not done talking about it at the end of this sentence. There's a very real sense in which, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, is kind of the topic he wants to talk about for the next three chapters. So we get the exaltation. So this morning, I was pointing out God's purpose in, in unifying and exalting his son. That's where he spends the rest of the chapter on. So the chapter ends with verse 20, so that he, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age and the age to come, and put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of all things. Well, that's going to set up... This, so, so Christ has got this amazing exaltation of all things. And you're going to find out, not to keep track with that, right? So let me go to, here's who you were. So chapter two, I suggested, a way of looking at it is, 
your former and your present circumstance individually and then corporately. So individually, you were one to three. But God, being rich in the mercy with the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved. And what did he do in verse 6, Carrie? Chapter 2, verse 6. Oh, you're going to need a Bible for this one. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Not, yeah. No, no, fair enough. Fair enough. What did he do in verse? This is jaw-dropping. Well, it should be, I think. Verse 6, what did he do? Chapter 2, verse 6. And where is that, given the end of chapter 1? See, the jaw-dropping part is God first exalts Christ above everything and everybody and places his head over everything. And guess what? Because we're joined with him, we go up there too. That's going to be one of the blessings in Christ he's going to start unpacking in chapter 2. It's supposed to make you go, whoa, whoa, what? And this is the basis on which Christ can say things like, you will rule with me in my kingdom. So Christ has been so exalted, but he's the head of the church. So where the head goes, the body goes. That's the notion of our union with Christ. And so that is, he's, he's not done talking about the blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And then you go to our corporate former position in verse 1. We, the Gentiles, were far away. And we were, according to verse 12, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And then we get another, but now. Look how 13 parallels verse 4. So in, chapter, so in 2, 1 to 3, we have our former individual condition, which focuses on our slavery to sin and our walking in darkness. But God individually regenerated you. And then in 11 through 12, we focus on us as Gentiles. Our corporate position formerly was separated without hope, without God. But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near. We're still looking at these blessings. We're talking about Christ unifying um, things. For he himself has made our peace. We're talking about that redemption that we're talking about today. So what he set up, what I covered in today's message, what he set up is exactly what he's talking about here in chapter 2. About how that redemption took place. The wall of hostility was taken down. Verse 14. That, um, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two so making peace. And he's already unifying and bringing things together and ordering things. That's kind of where he's going into chapter 3. Because the mystery that he picks up that he also seeded in what we were reading today is what he spends the rest of chapter 3 dealing with, 3, 1 to 13. And the mystery is specifically, so since God is intent on unifying and ordering all of creation in and through his son, we're going to look at a subset of that, which is how he's going to order his body, the church. And the way he's going to order it is he's going to make no separation between Jew and Gentile. He is going to tear down that wall. He's going to make one new man. And so that's what we're talking about here. When uh, Verse 4, chapter 3, 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there is so so what I would say, Carrie, is this his opening benediction. He's breaking into broad categories, topics of spiritual blessing. He's going to spend all of the first three chapters dealing with. So it's not even limited to this opening benediction. The benediction becomes kind of a roadmap to the next two chapters on what topics he wants to talk. So if I were to summarize it, 
God's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And I want to talk about his predestining blessing. I want to talk about his redeeming blessing. I want to talk about his future exaltation of Christ with the church blessing. And I want to talk about your future inheritance blessing. These are the blessings that I want to talk about. And we can talk about more, right? He's given us blessings of art and beauty. We can talk about the blessings of the created order, the stars and the sun. But he's talking about those blessings. He's going to spend the next three chapters talking about those blessings. So yes, we can summarize at the end of this sentence, but really that's, what we're, that's a, a roadmap for chapters one, two, and three. So we're going to be talking about those blessings a whole lot. <laughs> okay. The yes or no question was, we're going to come back and summarize. That was, that was the yes. Okay, sorry. Uh, would you care to bring in John 15, chapter 5, with abiding, the aspect of abiding, and then apart from me, you can do nothing? Sure. Um, a lot of what we're told, okay, let me, let me preface that. So um, what the question is, we're told to abide in Christ. How does being united to Christ and abiding in Christ relate? So a lot of Paul's logic in the New Testament is God has done these things or he's um, made these things, now live like it. So we're told in chapter four of Ephesians to maintain the unity of the spirit. God has, we saw in chapter two, he's made peace. Now live like it. Get along, you guys. This is the basis in Philippians, unity and sympathy. Stop quarreling, get along. Christ has made peace for us. Be at peace. Um, it's the, the logic of 1 Corinthians 1 those who are sanctified in Christ called to be sanctified. God has declared you holy, live like it, right? Okay, you've been united to Christ, abide there. And our temptation, of course, even though we've been united to Christ, is to live in ways where we're not practically doing that. So the logic of 1 John is God's light. If you're walking in darkness, guess where you're not? Abiding in Christ. God didn't go anywhere. You did. In him there is no darkness whatsoever. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and deceive ourselves and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is of the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. So the New Testament's, then, the New Testament's insistence is you've been united to Christ. You've been placed in Christ. Stay there. <laughs> Stay put. And Christ is saying in John 15, if you abide in me and I in you, You'll bear this good fruit. The picture is of a vine. If you're connected to the vine, the sap flows through you. You bear the fruit of the vine. If you get cut off from the vine, you stop bearing fruit. That's that's ultimately the logic. Um, yeah. So no, that's precise. And that's the rationale of 1 John 1. Uh, by this we know that we've come to know him, that we're keeping his commandments. You could say it this way. By this we know that we've been united to Christ, that we bear fruit. Because anyone united to the vine is going to bear fruit. And that's the basis on which if you don't bear fruit over an extended period of time, the church may well question and ultimately ch challenge whether or not you're united to the vine in the first place. You're not, bearing it, not because you're saved by bearing fruit, but you demonstrate you're united to the vine by bearing fruit. You know? Um, no. Excellent question. Excellent question. Okay. Where we go? Oh, Linda. Okay, you can punt for two years if you want to on this one. Two years. <laughs> and say we're going to deal with that when we get there. But... Um. <laughs> I don't think we'll be to Ephesians that long. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, 
I'm just preparing. <laughs> okay, so in verse 1 3, when it talks about who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, and then in 6 12, it talks about against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Right, right. Well, that is, um, that was, let me, let me pick, combine what you just said with what um, Renee Zimmerman asked me on her way out. She couldn't stay for ABF, but she asked a question. And her question was, if, if Christ is, this mystery is, according to what I said this morning, the mystery of verse 10 is that God intends to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And why, when Paul talks about the mystery, does he focus in chapter 3 simply solely on the church? Well, I said, well, because that's a subset of the ordering, and it's the subset that most directly affects us. <laughs> However, we see in chapter 6, when we talk about this warfare of spiritual beings, they will be ordered, rightly, in hell because of Christ. And so this, this spiritual battle takes place in a spiritual sphere. It's not physical. This is the mistake of Christendom, of people trying to pick up swords to bring in the kingdom. Paul's explicit in 2 Corinthians 10, our, our warfare is, we fight a war. It's not a physical, fleshly war. It's a spiritual war. And in chapter 6, it's all about engaging in that conflict where, it won't take us two years. Linda. I, it'll be sometime in 2020 when we get there. Lord okay. willing. But, um, but which verse in chapter 6? Uh, 12. 12. Okay, yeah. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And again, this is that same, God has exalted Christ above them. He's placed him as head over all of them, and yet we still need to battle them. And we battle, John Piper uses a helpful illustration, the, the war we make is a war done in the confidence of the victory. So after Japan... Well, that's not how you say the word. Uh, look, if you guys can talk about Peru and Nevada, I can say Japan. After... Peru? It's Peru. Peru. Yes, okay. it's Peru. Madrid? Madrid. Okay. Um, okay. No, when I first came here, I'm like, you can't be serious. Nevada. Okay. Um, after Japan surrendered at the end of World War II, there were still limited skirmishes in the islands from uh, troops and groups of troops that simply hadn't heard or didn't believe the report right. that Japan had surrendered. Right. There was still fighting. There were casualties. There were, there were conflicts after the surrender of Japan. But those um, forces fighting um, against them fought with a certain confidence knowing <laughs> this is inevitable. Japan is, we still need to take these people out. The other picture the New Testament uses is of a snake being dealt a mortal wound. It can still bite you. Mm -hmm. Even though there's a, you know, his head has been pierced or crushed. It can still bite you. It can still thrash around. And so that, those are, that, that's a biblical metaphor. And Piper brings up the metaphor of the conflict in the, in the Pacific, that we still have this battle, even though it's a done deal and a fait accompli. Christ has been exalted above them, and we are in him, and we're seated with him. Therefore, we're above them. And in that confidence, we wage war. It's a war whose outcome is certain. It's a war where there is no, like, I hope we win. Like, no, no. But be what you are. You've been exalted. Over, it's it's um, the same metaphor in, in Revelation. The victory, Nike. Um, this, the, the shoe Nike gets comes from the Greek word victory or to overcome, and all those references to the one who overcomes the overcomer is victory, the one who the victor. Well, 
they overcome by the blood of the lamb, according to Revelation. Like, it's not something that they, they had a really good plan and they scored enough points and they won. No, they overcome because Christ has overcome. Christ says, I've overcome the world and in him we do the same thing. That's, that's the rationale. Um, okay. Okay. You got, oh, you got, she's got the bike still. We're not done. Okay. Please. So is there a difference between, because it says power, the whole thing, powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. So are they two separate? Well, the powers of this world are earthly powers. Right. And behind them are spiritual powers. And we're fighting sometimes both. I mean, Paul's dealing with a, a government that is actively arresting Christians and persecuting them physically. Um, and so he's dealing with real physical opposition. And behind that is spiritual opposition. Right. So, But it just seemed like maybe they, it's, it's separate entities because of the... And like it's separating those powers. Oh no, from... no, they're, they're separate. They're separate. Like, we'll go back to chapter two. Go to chapter two. Here's how they're separate. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's not working the sense of disobedience. So the prince of this world has the those who are dead in their sins in his sway. They're distinct, they're separate in that sense, but they're unified in another sense, right? So that's, I think, what Paul has in view, is there's the kingdoms of this age, and there's the spiritual forces behind them, but the assumption is there's some uniformity of movement and purpose. They're on the same team, and they're being directed by the same mind or will on the other side. So no, no, there is distinction, absolutely, but the distinction isn't of two separate enemies, but rather two different sets of forces for one enemy. Let me... 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of this world is blind to the minds of unbelievers. Absolutely. Go, Jim. Okay, five minutes, one or two more. Oh, Linda. Can, sorry. <laughs> Can I We're never just, getting this mic back. Is it, <laughs> sorry. Is it right to say, if we look at... Um, Christ was um, from crucified from the foundation of the world. We were elected from the foundation. Everything has been done. No. Not. I, no, I hear like my hyper-Calvinistic friends say that. It doesn't work because of two, three. What were we formerly like? We were formerly children of wrath. Well, if, if all of the... Oh, Zeb's going to jump in. Hold on. If all of the benefits of Christ's death were applied to us, how could there be any wrath on us? No, that's not what I'm That's saying. not what you're saying. No. Oh, I'm sorry. No. What were you saying? Sorry. It's almost as though everything was wrapped up before the foundation of the world. Now history's playing out, and God's walking us through that. The victory's been won. Everything's been done. He's elect. The one's... Well, yeah, yeah, well, it's, it, that's, that's all fixed because Is of 111. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. If God is in control of all things, there's nothing that he's right. not in control of. And if he has a purpose and he's oh. determined to accomplish his purpose, guess what? It's going to happen yeah, with zero uncertainty. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. It's oh, done. yes, that's correct. That's it's totally done. correct. <laughs> Zeb. I think that's pretty much... 
the clarification came through. The main thing is, yeah, there are people, there are some fringe elements that will claim that we're like, we've been justified from the foundations yes. of the earth, which that's, is, that's, there's definitely like throughout the New Testament, mm-hmm. it's very clear. There's a definite point in which we mm-hmm. become justified. However, yeah. yes, the election, it's the certain. plan, the plan is absolutely certain. Absolutely certain. It's, a, it's the golden chain of Romans 8. Those he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. But I have encountered a stripe of people. It usually probably comes from a good impulse. They're so delighting in God's love with them. He loved you from the foundation of the world. How could he ever have been mad at me? Well, no, we were all, Paul was formerly a child of wrath. And the wrath was removed. In, first, in John 3, whoever does not believe, the wrath of God abides over him. Um, so no, there is, there is wrath that abides and is removed at justification and not before that. Even for those sons and daughters whom God foreknew and chose and, and before the foundation were loved. So, okay. Jim wants a microphone. Bring us home, Jim. We've got about right. three minutes. Just an observation. Just an observation. Okay. So it seems like the hinge, the turning point between the two groups is when someone believes and has the Holy Spirit in them. Two distinct groups, fluid in one direction, potentially. That is, the unbeliever, by God's grace, can become the believer. And once the Holy Spirit dwells in you, God will begin a good work in you and see to it that you're... Well, it's it's once reunited. I'd say it's union in Christ. Union in Christ is accomplished by our faith. So when we talk about being justified, when you believe, the Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12 immerses, dips, places you in Christ. You're baptized by one spirit into the body. And then that's when you're united to Christ. And then like that plant, all the blessings flow. Adoption, sonship, justification, sanctification. I mean, it all comes in Christ. You, once you're, it's like connecting a circuit. Once you're connected to that power source, all that stuff flows through. And so union with Christ, and not until we're united with Christ, do we get all these blessings. The instrumental when you use classical categories, means of justification is our faith. What, what's the trigger that, that causes the movement to happen? But the material cause of justification is Christ and his work. So what, the, the, what flips the switch? Our faith. What, just, what triggers God to do the justifying work? But where does the power come from? It's all in Christ. And once we're united to Christ, all that flows in a sense, you, you can use different metaphors. Envelops us like we're like when I dip you in water, you're completely surrounded by the water. Once we're in Christ, all these blessings that are in Him envelop us in a sense. Um, right, but to support Zeb's yeah, point yeah, that yeah. we weren't united to Christ before faith. No, no, absolutely. Um, right, which is again, as someone, I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big believer. The Bible teaches clearly. Emphatically teaches election predestination. You must believe, and and that doesn't change our gospel call to plead with men. Paul says, "We we implore you, as though God are making His appeal through us, be reconciled to God." And you must believe, and no one can believe for you. And unless you believe, you will perish. Right? These things still all remain absolutely true. Um. Okay, we're at time. Okay. Thank you all. Godspeed. Good day. And uh, God willing, we'll see you all next week.